Hi, everybody. It is Wednesday, October 4th. You are listening to the Mo News Podcast, and I am Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. We read all of the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. Mosh is on paternity leave, and I mentioned that I have some great guests lined up for this week. Today, I'm really excited to be joined by Lauren Smith-Brody. She is the CEO and the founder of The Fifth Trimester, which advances gender equality in the workforce through support for moms and all caregivers. Some moms out there might know Brody from her best-selling book, The Fifth Trimester, The Working Mom's Guide to Style, Sanity, and Success After Baby, which I read and I think really captures what new moms are going through, particularly as they head back to work in that fifth trimester with all of the guilt and stress that comes with it. You may have also seen Brody or her research in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, on Good Morning America, CNN. And if that was not enough, she's also the co-founder of the Chamber of Mothers. It's a national, nonpartisan, nonprofit that mobilizes Americans around public policy solutions for moms advocating on Capitol Hill. And she is a mom herself and a wife. She and her family live in New York City. Lauren, with all of that, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. I'm so honored to be with you, Jill. This is great. So Moshe is out on paternity leave. As our audience knows, he and his wife just had a daughter. And while I do miss him, I am so happy that he is taking time to be with his family. We often talk about maternity leave, as I just mentioned, but paternity leave is also so important. It sure is. More and more, we're realizing that paternity leave is the big unlock to women's equality and leadership and gender pay equity. And that's because only when we stop seeing care work as solely a women's issue, will it stop being a women's issue. Also, Jill, did you know that for every one month of paternity leave a dad takes, mom's earnings increase 7% when they're measured four years later? That's literally how we beat the motherhood penalty. All right, really quickly, what exactly is the motherhood penalty? It's the opposite of the daddy bonus. So the motherhood penalty is the measurable negative impact, usually about 5 or 6% per child on a woman's earnings. So that's how much her compensation decreases and on her status and her perceived competence and commitment. And that is all controlled for part-time, going part-time, controlled for taking an unpaid leave. That is all do completely to bias. In fact, when you look at the gender wage gap, 80% of the gender wage gap can be attributed to the motherhood penalty. I did see something that women are actually now out earning men up until I think it's like the age of 30. And then their right. earnings start to go down. And it's very obvious what's happening, which is that they're having kids. 60% of college grads right now are women. Um, more medical school graduates are women. More, you know, women, there's all kinds of, I could, I could get blue in the face telling you all the studies about the ways that women's are, women are great. But basically, you have to keep them in that moment, in that inflection point after having a baby to be able to have them stay in the pipeline to leadership and become the incredibly profitable leaders they are. And we know that, you know, if we actually had gender equality in leadership in business, the United States GDP, this was a McKinsey study, would increase by 26%. And I will say just on a personal note, you were extremely helpful to me when I first had my daughter five years ago at this point. And I, I really thank you for that because you helped. It is a hard transition for women who are coming back from maternity leave, going back to work. It, I think it was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. Uh, so I, I really appreciate it. 
came. I mean, the whole reason that I started doing this work after years working in magazines is because it felt at the time to me like an individual problem. And the more I saw other people around me go through it, the more I realized this is not an individual problem to be solved. It is actually a whole lot of systems and a whole lot of bias working against us, but together, you know, with the tiny bit of energy and time, especially, you know, that new moms have, we can make a difference and we can correct, you know, some of these inequities. And I do eventually want to get to some news here because (laughs) it is a big news day. But as we were talking about before, dads are such a big part of the equation. And I actually get so annoyed at dad shaming posts on social media. People who follow me on Instagram know that there is nothing that gets me more frustrated than momfluencers or influencers that think it's funny to rag on their husbands. Like, I just gave birth and here's my husband who's asleep on the hospital couch. And I know I'm lucky because my husband is really an equal partner, but it is not 1950 anymore. Most dads I know are extremely involved with their kids and want to be. Right. And they're not going to be motivated by anybody making fun of them. (laughs) We're all tired. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) All right. With that, let's get to some news here. Dysfunction Junction in D.C. Kevin McCarthy has been ousted as Speaker of the House. What comes next? Now, it also comes as pandemic relief funding for child care has ended. The impact that this can have on working parents Stop me if you've heard this before. Mortgage rates tick higher, making home ownership even that much more expensive. Also getting more expensive, just sitting at home and watching Netflix. Plus, some famous authors join a class action lawsuit against OpenAI. We're going to tell you why and the real impact that AI is having on authors like Lauren Smith Brody. Plus, the notorious RBG, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, honored on a new postage stamp. Lauren, just as nobody is mailing anything anymore. No, and buy them for my sons to use. They're going to be mailing some things (laughs) soon. (laughs) Plus, I will have On This Day in History, and it is a good one. I have been struggling with On This Day in History because it's really Moshe's area of expertise. But today, I feel very confident we're going to have a good conversation. (laughs) Definitely. (laughs) There's some theme music coming up. All right, let's start with politics. A historic day in Washington. The U.S. House of Representatives voted Tuesday to oust Kevin McCarthy as speaker. That has literally never happened, where a speaker is ousted through this passage of a resolution to remove them. On this vote, the yeas are 216. The nays are 210. The resolution is adopted. Without objection, the motion to reconsider is laid on the table. The Office of Speaker of the House of the United States House of Representatives is hereby declared vacant. There were eight Republicans who joined 208 Democrats in voting to remove McCarthy. But as we've been reporting on this podcast, the motion to remove McCarthy actually came from a fellow Republican. I am talking about Representative Matt Gates. He is from Florida. He has warned that he would do this if McCarthy decided to pass that stopgap budget agreement, working with Democrats to avert a government shutdown. That's what McCarthy did. Gates then followed through on his promise. Here is a bit of what he had to say on the floor before the vote, defending his decision to move forward with removing McCarthy, which critics have said just creates more chaos. I don't think voting against Kevin McCarthy is chaos. I think 33 trillion in debt 
is chaos. I think that facing a $2.2 trillion annual deficit is chaos. I think that not passing single-subject spending bills is chaos. I think the fact that we have been governed in this country since the mid-90s by continuing resolution and omnibus is chaos. McCarthy would have needed Democrats in the House to vote to keep him in his leadership position. Democrats not playing ball here. House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries said this is, quote, now the responsibility of the GOP members to end the House Republican civil war. So what now? Republican Representative Patrick McHenry of North Carolina will now temporarily lead the House. He is a friend of Kevin McCarthy. His name was on a list that McCarthy was required to give the clerk in case this very thing happened. He doesn't have a lot of power, though. In fact, the House can't really start any legislative business until a new speaker is elected. And again, this is historical. Several speakers have resigned amid intra-party threats of a vote on their ousting. John Boehner back in 2015, Newt Gingrich back in 1998. But the House, again, has just never removed a speaker and hasn't held a floor vote on removing a speaker in over a century So why did this happen? Ironically, it was part of a rule change that was put in place by McCarthy as he was trying to win the speakership back in January, just one of his concessions to far-right members of his party. The measure is called a motion to vacate the chair. It only requires the backing of one person to force the House to consider removing the speaker. The bottom line now, Republicans still control the House. They just need to figure out who is going to be their next speaker And meanwhile, the clock is ticking until that stopgap budget measure runs out. So the money runs out in less than 45 days. Lauren, I feel like I was just talking for an hour, but I just wanted to give everyone the background here. You work with the private sector. You work with the public sector. I feel like this is just one of the reasons Americans are so tired of Congress and politics in general. It's definitely going to make for a complicated dinnertime conversation with my two teenage boys, for sure. I think it's also, it's one of the reasons that we're really ready for a new wave of people in elected office in both parties who are actually living lives that look anything like the overall American public. People who are raising kids, people who are caring for their parents, who are living the issues that most need solving. It's time. And I hope your teenage boys are going to listen to this podcast. I recently found out that some kids listen. I love that. That's great. They probably listen in school. Schools are great about having kids listen to stuff. All right. As we were saying, this all stemmed from this past weekend when the government avoided a shutdown by 32 minutes. But what didn't get as much attention was that this weekend, a rescue package for the child care industry also expired. Since November of 2021, child care providers have had access to the child care workforce stabilization grants. Those grants were meant to help stabilize the child care community by providing money to retain and recruit staff. The money was allocated as part of the American Rescue Plan. It was just this two-year initiative that was set to expire at the end of September. But with this initiative ending, a lot of people are sounding the alarm about the detrimental impact that it could have on American child care, which is an industry that's already in crisis. The Century Foundation is a progressive, nonpartisan think tank. They put out a report saying 70,000 child care programs are likely to close when those federal funds end. About 3.2 million children could lose their spots. Uh, Lauren, this is actually something that Moshe and I have reported on before, but you've done a ton of work in this area. I'm curious what you're hearing here and, and just how soon we might see the impact. 
how soon? I, I mean, soon now, yesterday, last week, like a year ago, you know, yes, there are going to be huge, huge repercussions. Costs will rise. The quality will potentially decline. Many families will have to make hard choices probably about their careers or potentially choices even about the safety quality of their kids' care. I think for context, it's really important to realize that like other kinds of COVID relief that we saw funded, childcare funding was passed back then because of the emergency. But this was really a pre-existing condition for American parents. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has called childcare a, quote, textbook example of a broken market. That means it costs more than people can afford and still can't pay its workers a living wage. That's broken. Um, Some more context sort of looking globally. Other wealthy countries spend about $14,000 for one toddler in one year to subsidize that kid's childcare. The U.S. spends $500 per kid. Wow. Yeah. And so basically in the industrialized developed world, it is seen as a childcare, is seen as a public right, just the same as having a military to protect you or having your garbage picked up on the side of the road or sending a kid to kindergarten. I'm not really sure why we think five-year-olds should have free educations, but we think that newborns should just have to have parents solve the problem. Um, The good news is actually, and there is good news, there is a lot of innovation happening, um, particularly in the private sector. There are a lot of B2B solutions around childcare, a lot of really cool startups. I'm actually working on a paper, a white paper right now alongside a childcare company called Vivi that's going to measure the return on investment of these supports by employers for their employees around childcare because it's profitable for a business. And it's also profitable for our country's GDP to retain parents in the workforce. So we recently reported on this podcast on this unexpected and massive job gains that were made by women since the start of the pandemic. In fact, as of June, the percentage of women in the workforce with young children was at a record high. What is the risk here? Do you think those gains are potentially at risk as this funding dries out? Sure. Short answer is yes. Um, But I think it's really important to remember that the reality is that 41% of households have either a primary or a solo breadwinning mom. So these moms are going to have to find a way. They simply have to, whether it's leaning on family or working at different shifts. But in a two-parent heterosexual household, in those couples, yes, we see that women are more likely to be pushed to leave their careers to do care work. So Motion, I really keep this nonpartisan, this podcast, Where do you see any sort of room for agreement, for cooperation amongst lawmakers to do something about the child care crisis? That is actually kind of the beauty of this moment. I mean, I just want to highlight that in this 45-day countdown until the next potential government, I guess, what are we at, 42 days now, 41 (laughs) days? The hope really, for me at least, is that child care is not a partisan issue. It is an everyone issue. Care is an everyone issue. Everyone has someone they care for, even if it's just, and there's no just there, but even if it's just yourself. Um, There was, you know, according to the first five years fund, 70% of voters believe federal funding is needed to ensure that parents have safe, reliable, high quality care for their children while they work. 66% of Republicans feel it should come out of taxes. So it's not even a disagreement about how do we pay for this as it is with issues like paid family leave. Um, For childcare, everyone knows it's an everyone issue. 
Um, so there are actually two key pieces of childcare legislation that are bouncing around right now. One of them um, is partisan. It's the Dem- Democrats' um, Child Care Stabilization Act, which would extend funding for five years. It does not have any Republican support, though, and I, I don't have a ton of hope for it in this 45-day period. But the other is bipartisan. It's called the Child Care Investment Act. It was proposed this summer, and it basically updates tax incentives for employers to help out with child care and increases flexible spending account caps for families to better reflect the actual cost. They've been stuck back at levels that were more appropriate for the 1980s than now. So I have some hope for that one. And while, thank you for reporting this, we may not have a Speaker of the House at the moment, there are some very cool pilots happening to support new moms led by government agencies like HHS, that's Health and Human Services, or the digital services folks at the White House Office of Management and Budget. There's, for instance, a a benefits bundle for new families with supplies and supported services that's being done as a small pilot. Didn't take a lot of money. It's going to be a proof of concept. And I think there's a good chance, actually, that the Preventing Maternal Deaths Act will also be reauthorized in this 45-day period. It's, It's up for renewal. It lasts five years, and it does have bipartisan support. Basically, when it comes to health and safety of moms and babies, we really all can agree on this stuff. Okay, that seems promising. Hopefully we'll have you back on when any of this passes. I would love that. (laughs) We've got plenty of more news coming up, but for now, some words from some of our sponsors. Parlez-vous Francais? Well, I do not at all, really, which is why I am so excited about our newest sponsor. The best way to learn a language is really through immersion, living where that language is spoken natively and using it every day. But that isn't possible for everyone. So what is the second best way to learn a language? Babbel. Because with Babbel, you could start to speak a new language in just three weeks. Moshe has been taking Spanish lessons and he has been loving it. I cannot wait to start my French lessons. Why Babbel? Because it works. Instead of paying hundreds of dollars for private tutors or fooling yourself with language apps that are a little bit more than games, Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are designed by over 150 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations. All of Babbel's tips and tools for learning a new language are approachable, accessible, and rooted in real-life situations. And they have a special limited time deal for our listeners to get you started. Right now, you can get 55% off your Babbel subscription. Head to babbel.com slash monews with our discount. So that it's just about six bucks a month to learn a new language. Again, that deal, 55% off at babbel.com slash monews. It's spelled babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L.com slash monews, M-O-N-E-W-S. Some rules and restrictions may apply. And you guys know I'm trying to keep my energy up without my trusty co-host, Mosh. And perhaps I could thank Athletic Greens. I first tried Athletic Greens AG1 powder a few months ago. It is just one scoop with a glass of water in the morning. It's easy and quick and lets you get on with your day knowing that you've gotten over 75 important ingredients, including tons of vitamins and minerals. It also has pre and probiotics to support digestion and gut health. With your first purchase of AG1, Athletic Greens is giving Mo News listeners a free one-year supply of their vitamin D and five free travel packs of AG1. Visit drinkag1.com slash monews to take advantage of this offer. You can get a discounted monthly subscription. 
or try it just one time for a month. Again, drinkag1.com slash monews, M-O-N-E-W-S for this special deal and really start to take ownership of your health. Time now for the speed read. Let's start with some economic news. Mortgage rates inching even higher. From CNBC, the average rate on the popular 30-year fixed mortgage rose to 7.72% on Tuesday. Rates have not been this high since the end of 2000, and it looks like there is a real possibility that rates will go above 8%. The Fed did not raise interest rates two weeks ago, but indicated that they will likely raise rates again this year and that they'll make fewer rate cuts than expected next year. Investors were waiting to see the results of some economic data that was coming out in this first week of October. That first week is here, and the data has somehow continued to be strong, particularly on the jobs front. The number of job openings at U.S. employers unexpectedly rose in August, according to some new data released by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. There were an estimated 9.61 million open jobs in August. Now, back to mortgage rates, those higher rates are just crushing home affordability. To put rates in perspective for a borrower that was purchasing a $400,000 home with a 20% down payment on a 30-year fixed loan, the monthly payment today is about $930, more than it was when rates were at 3% during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. That is some real money, especially when you factor it in over 30 years. And especially when you factor in what we were just talking about with the expected, you know, rising cost of childcare, you've got families, we're going to see a lot of families probably stuck without a lot of options. You know, people aren't going to be able to downsize their home to be able to afford daycare that's suddenly more expensive. They're not going to be able to pick up and move closer to grandma and grandpa for support. They're going to be stuck. Yeah. As everybody who listens to this podcast knows, my mom literally comes over every single day. (laughs) <laughs> from three to six, from three to six thirty, is like I book her like a babysitter, and I'm like, mom. And if she's going to be late, she'll be like, I'm running a little bit late because I really rely on it because I moved five to ten minutes from my parents, and it has been so incredibly helpful. And that is a probably a big part of why you move there. You love her and you want her involved in your kids' lives, right? And it's part of the reason I can do this podcast. Right, right. <laughs> my children are being watched by homework and video games right now, so all good. <laughs> They are a little bit older, I will say. Like, just for context, for people who don't know, your your kids are what twelve and fifteen, so no one thinks that you're letting you know like toddlers roam around. I'd be the first to tell you if I were, because like, let's normalize not being helicopters. (laughs) All right, from the Wall Street Journal, Netflix plans to raise the price of its ad free service just a few months after the continuing Hollywood actors' strike ends. It is the latest in a series of recent price increases by the country's largest streaming platforms. The Wall Street Journal says that they could not confirm by how much Netflix is going to be raising prices or when exactly those new prices will take effect. Netflix not commenting. Over the past year or so, the cost of major ad-free streaming services has gone up by about 25% as entertainment companies look to bring their streaming platforms to profitability and lead some price-conscious customers to switch to their cheaper and more lucrative ad-supported plans. Streamers are also starting to look at how they can create some new pricing tiers around exclusive programming like sports without running the risk of driving people away from their core offerings. Netflix has actually stood out from its peers because they're profitable. They have a profitable streaming business and they have been the lone major streaming company not to raise prices over the past year. 
Instead, they have focused on boosting revenue by cracking down on password sharing. Its latest price increase came in January of 2022. The company reportedly planning to wait until the dual Hollywood writer and actor strikes end before they raise prices. The writer's strike, as we know, is over, but the actor's strike continues. Laura and I saw this and just thought, can we live (laughs) enough? (laughs) Enough already. Um, No. And for the record, Netflix, I was never sharing my password with anyone. So maybe I should get a discount or something. (laughs) I know it's a luxury, but I've got these young teens and Netflix is the one family activity we can all agree on. We're actually making our way right now through Never Have I Ever. We came to it kind of late and it is perfect for everything that my husband and I want to talk to them about that they wouldn't talk to us about otherwise. Basically, every important parenting moment I've had over the last two months has been brought to you by the brilliant writers of that show. So maybe I'm actually making a case to pay more for my Netflix. (laughs) Wait, that's so interesting. That show hasn't even been on my radar. So maybe I'll do it for um, what we are watching. We do the segment, what we're watching, reading and eating. So maybe that'll be what I watch this weekend. Oh, it's so good. It's just, you just can't help but love it. And it's great for any, if you have any teens in your life, in your life, it opens them up. From CNN, a group of famous fiction writers have joined the Authors Guild in filing a class action suit against OpenAI, alleging that the company's technology is illegally using their copyrighted work. The complaint claims that OpenAI, the company behind the viral chatbot ChatGPT, is copying famous works in acts of, quote, flagrant and harmful copyright infringement and feeding manuscripts into algorithms to help train systems on how to create more human-like text responses. George R.R. Martin, who wrote Game of Thrones, John Grisham, Jonathan Franzen, among 17 prominent authors who joined the suit led by the Authors Guild. So they're basically alleging that books created by the authors that were illegally downloaded and fed into these GPT systems could turn a profit for open AI by, quote, and I say this really in quotes, writing new works in the author's styles, while the original creators would get nothing More than 10,000 authors, including James Patterson, Roxane Gay, Margaret Atwood, also signed an open letter calling on the AI industry leaders like Microsoft and chat GPT maker OpenAI to at least get consent from authors when using their work to train AI models and then compensate them fairly when they do. Lauren, this is one of these issues that is so, I think, theoretical to most people where it's kind of over their head. But your book is one of the thousands that is being used to train the bots. Can you explain how that feels, number one, and the impact that this could have? I do not consent. I do not. (laughs) I am an author and I'm a pay equity expert. So no, I do not consent to having my words stolen. It is the definition of unfair. It's robbery. Um, You know, the average income for a full-time writer is about $23,000 per year. So this is not a profession that can afford to be robbed. But more than that, to go deeper, it's existential. You know, writers, fiction writers are storytellers. Nonfiction writers are thought leaders. I don't want to live in a world without books that are written by humans. I do think, sorry, you're always going to get the like sunny side from me. I do think that this may be the moment when the world wakes up to the need for regulation around AI as a whole. And I say, leave it to the thought leaders to do that for us. So thank you, authors. The fact that you're optimistic on this, <laughs> I'm shocked because I feel like this is the end of the world. <laughs> right. <laughs> 
Okay, from NPR, as a Supreme Court justice with a large and devoted fan base, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was a cultural and judicial phenomenon, and now the influential justice will adorn cards, letters, and packages. The U.S. Postal Service officially showing off a new stamp featuring Ginsburg this week. The forever stamps cost 66 cents each, or thirteen twenty for a sheet of 20. The new stamps show Ginsburg in her judicial robes, wearing her famous white beaded collar, with an intricate geometric pattern that she said came from Cape Town, South Africa. The stamp memorializes her quest for equal justice. The U.S. Postal Service art director Ethel Kessler calls it, quote, the stamp project of a lifetime. Lauren, what do you consider Ginsburg's legacy? I mean, for me personally, she was my best celebrity sighting ever. I saw her at Whole Foods buying kale, bags of kale, this tiny, tiny one. Wait, wait, <laughs> which Whole Foods? I'm so intrigued. 87th and 3rd in Manhattan. It was maybe maybe six months or a year before she passed away. Did other people recognize her? Did you try to get a picture? Did you approach her? Yeah, so she had, there was there was security outside waiting to help her with her bags, but she was also, you know, she was famously, she worked out a lot and she, she was carrying all of her own things. And and like, it was like the Red Sea parting, like people just <laughs> made way. This tiny, tiny, you know, mighty woman. Um, so yeah, so she's the first Supreme Court justice to get a solo U.S. stamp um, since uh, 2003. Three, right? When Thurgood Marshall was honored. But really her legacy is her impact. Um, because of her as a woman, I can have a bank account and a credit card and a mortgage, apparently a mortgage with a very high rate. <laughs> I can fight for equal pay and I can serve on a jury. And that was all Ruth. And Jill, just to come totally back full circle to when we were talking about Moshe's paternity leave and why paternity leave is important. So many of the landmark cases that Justice Ginsburg argued in her career helped broaden our definition of gender roles and fought for women's rights, but they did it by pointing out men's rights. She was really crafty. Maybe it was the kale. (laughs) Fathers who were initially denied social security benefits or military spouse allowance because at the time those were only for women, not men. These were the cases she took. Her main argument was equal protection that sex discrimination hurt men, not just women. And that was what made progress. It was really such a brilliant strategy where she decided not to take a case where she was arguing for women's rights, where she was actually arguing for men's rights. Right. You you couldn't argue against it. Okay, now it's time for On This Day in History. On this day in 1957, the Soviet Union launched Sputnik 1, the first artificial satellite which orbited Earth until 1958. It inaugurated the space age and heightened Cold War competition between the then USSR and the United States. On this day in 1993, the so-called Battle of Mogadishu in Somalia ended with a death toll that included 18 U.S. soldiers and hundreds of Somalis. The conflict occurred during a U.S.-led military operation. It was part of a wider international humanitarian and peacekeeping effort in the war-torn African country. On this day in 1990, Beverly Hills 90210 premiered. It's so good. I mean, that was the sound of my childhood. I cannot overstate how big a part of my tween, my teen, my college years this show was. Okay, so were you Team Dylan or were you Team Brandon? So when I first watched the show, like in real time when I was a kid, I was Team Brandon. 
And then, admittedly, I rewatched all of the seasons. I think there were about 10. I don't think I did the college years, but all of the high school seasons. And I do feel like maybe Dylan was misunderstood. And now I am team Dylan. So I changed. What about you? I, I think I'm actually team Andrea, <laughs> editor of the school paper, the really blaze. I'm going to guess you were actually team Andrea too. And, um, and you know, Gabrielle Carteris was head of SAG-AFTRA until a couple years ago in um, 2021. I bet she's not sorry she handed that baton over to Fran Drescher now. So I looked this up, Andrea Zuckerman. The one thing I remember is that Gabrielle Carteris, if, if that's how we pronounce her name, I think she was 29 when the show started. So she was 29 playing a 15-year-old. So she was like in her 30s playing the role of a teenager. And I remember hearing that and it blowing my mind and thinking, oh my God, she's 35. That's so old. And now as I'm older than she was, I, I'm like, good for her. It's definitely helping me understand why she seemed so impressive at that young age running that high school newspaper. She totally had her stuff together. Anyway, that is a wrap on this podcast. But before we go, Lauren, thank you so much for talking all things 90210, Netflix, politics. I always joke to Mosh that we have serious range here on this podcast. How can people follow you or learn more about the Chamber of Mothers or the fifth trimester? Oh, amazing. Thank you. So I'm um, on LinkedIn is probably the easiest way to find me. I'm just Lauren Smith Brody there. Um, and on Instagram, I'm at the fifth trimester, or you can find um, my nonpartisan nonprofit that I co-founded with a whole bunch of other amazing co-founders called the Chamber of Mothers. And I will recommend that people follow you on Instagram, because if you care about these issues about working moms, and we do have so many moms who listen to this podcast and dads too, as we talk about, this is not just an issue for moms. Your Instagram, I feel like you're always pointing out things that in some ways the media misses, or I always get mm. story ideas from your Instagram account because I'm like, oh, that's going on. And I'll message you and I'll be like, what's like, what's happening? Tell me. And, and like, what's the real story behind it? So I recommend everyone give you a follow. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on too. All right. Thank you guys for listening to the Mo News podcast. If you like what you hear, share this with your friends. It will help us grow. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Review us in the app store. Call us 1-800-711-MOSH. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Mosh, M-O-S-H-E-H. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Mo News podcast.